in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We are at a dinner party. And this is a dinner party hosted by a Pharisee. Uh, This was the kind of dinner party where a rabbi, a religious teacher, is an honored guest. And many from the town gather around the outside of the room or the courtyard to be spectators and to hear what might be said by the rabbi. Now, based on the previous chapter, we have good reason to believe that this dinner is something of a trap. We know that the Pharisees are looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. He has become so popular with the crowds. The Pharisees need Jesus to make a mistake. They need Jesus to say something or to do something that will cause these conservative Jewish Galileans to turn against him. No doubt this Pharisee has invited some of his colleagues to this dinner, and they are going to do what they can during the dinner conversation to show the onlooking people that this man from Nazareth is a false prophet, that he is from the devil and not from God. For that is indeed what the Pharisees claimed. Well, something happened during this dinner that our Pharisee host did not expect. In some ways, it played right into his hands. For from the moment that Jesus took his place at the table, lounging on cushions the way that they did, there was a woman at his feet. Not just any woman, a harlot, a prostitute. And she washed his feet with her tears, and she dried them with her hair, and she kissed his feet over and over, and she poured expensive oil upon his feet and anointed them. And everyone watching knows what kind of woman this is. And yet Jesus does not reject her. He does not send her away. Does he not see how this looks? And the host hides his smile. Because Jesus is trapping himself. No holy man of God would allow himself to be touched by a harlot like this. And here it is, and it's happening right here in the sight of the crowd. Look with me at Luke 7. Let's begin reading in verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Now, I want you to notice the logic of verse 39. Simon the Pharisee is watching this episode play out, and his thinking includes four steps. Step one here is this sort of woman touching Jesus. Step two, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he would not allow this. Step three, Jesus must not know what kind of woman this is. Step four, and if he were a true prophet, he would know. So you've got those four steps taking place in the mind of Simon the Pharisee. And actually, there's a lot wrong With his thinking. Because it turns out that he's wrong about step two, he's wrong about step three, and he's wrong about step four. But the key error is his assumption that Jesus would not knowingly allow such a woman to draw near to him and anoint his feet. You see, here is the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees were all about appearances. The Pharisees were all about how things looked. They wanted to appear righteous. The righteousness of the Pharisees was all external and outward where people could see it. But Jesus is righteous. He has come to do his father's will And he has come to receive sinners and to save them. And so Jesus calls this man by name, Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. And of course, the crowd is all around, so Simon doesn't have much choice how to answer. Say it, teacher. And so Jesus tells a brief parable. Look at what he says in verses 41 and 42. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So the parable is simple. You have a money lender and you have two people who have taken out loans and are now in debt to the money lender. Okay? A Roman denarius was worth about $200 in today's money. So both of these people have significant debt. But one person owes the lender roughly $100,000. The other one owes the money lender $10,000. The point is, neither one of them is able to pay. 
And so the moneylender cancels the debts. He forgives both the $100,000 debt and the $10,000 debt. And you see the question that Jesus poses. Which of them will love him more? And it's not a trick question. Look at verse 43. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Sorry, I lost my place. Uh, He said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So when Jesus determines to teach this Pharisee and this onlooking crowd about forgiveness, he chooses to use the example of a canceled debt. Now, I am guessing that probably all of us have known what it is at some point or other in our lives to be in debt. Suddenly, you don't get to keep all that you earn. The debtor is a slave to the lender. You do the work, but then you have to take part of the fruit of your labor and you have to pass it on to the lender. And if you fail to keep paying off your debt, there are consequences. This is the nature of debt. Debt comes with legal demands. Debt comes with requirements that must be fulfilled. And this is not the only time that we find sin spoken of in the Bible in terms of debt. It's a common way of speaking about sin. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. When you put that passage beside this one, we begin to understand more clearly what it is that Jesus is teaching. And so we're going to ask a few questions together to unpack this passage. So number one, who owes In this passage, who is it that's in debt? Well, notice that Jesus is teaching that both the Pharisee and the harlot are in debt. One is represented by the man who owes 50 denarii. The other is by the one who owes 500. But both people are in debt. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us all to pray that God will forgive us our debts. So Jesus teaches that this is a fundamental, universal truth of humanity. 
We are all in debt to God. All kinds of people are in debt to God, from Pharisees to harlots. This is a universal condition. We're all in debt. I'm in debt to God. You're in debt to God. Okay, question two. What do we owe? Well, there is a sense in which you could say, we owe God everything. I mean, what do we have that he has not given to us? Everything we own, everything that we are, every second of our lives, it's all come from God. Uh, We sing this in our hymns, to all life he giveth both great and small. Or while all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. When you realize that everything that you have has been given to you, there should be a sense in which you say, I owe God my very life, my very being, all that I am. I want to live for the one who made me, who formed me in my mother's womb, who has given me a place in his story. But that said... The debt that Christ is talking about here isn't that kind of debt. It's not the debt of gratitude that we owe. Christ is talking in our passage about sin debt. And it's the worst kind of debt. When a person commits a crime, we will often say that they now owe a debt to society. When a person commits a sin against God, the justice of God demands that those sins be met with retribution and with punishment. And until that punishment has been carried out, that is a debt that is waiting to be paid. This is why all people are debtors to God. It's because all people have sinned against God. All people have broken his law. And rather than bringing the due punishment upon us immediately, God has postponed our punishment just for a time that we might have opportunity to come to him and find forgiveness. But we must not make a mistake. Do not think that that because the, the punishment is delayed, it therefore will not come. Romans 2 says this, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, Paul says, when we see the sins of other people, When we see the sins of people around us in this world, the awful things they say, the terrible things that they do, we agree it is right for their sins to be judged by God. But then Paul asks us, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Do you hear what's being taught in those verses? Each day that we live in sin, we are storing up offenses against God. We are storing up violations of His law, and we are therefore storing up our sin debt. We are storing up the wrath that we must endure. The debt that we all owe is a debt to the wrath of our holy God. A debt to that eternal prison called hell. This is why Jesus tells the woman at the end of our passage, your faith has saved you. Her soul was in peril. The debt that this woman owed was not money. The debt that this woman owed was eternal suffering. And by her faith in Christ, she is now being assured she has been saved from that fate. This was not a small debt. To have this debt canceled is to be saved from the wrath of God. Who is this God to whom we owe such a debt? Well, he is the creator God. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. He is the God who loves all that is evil I'm sorry, loves all that is good with an infinite love, but therefore hates all that is evil with an infinite hatred. We were made to bear the holy image of this God. We were made to be like him and to know him and to worship him. The God we have sinned against is the God to whom we owe pure and perfect obedience. This God is lovely through and through. He is strong and tender, wise and patient, sovereign and kind. If you don't love this God, it's because you don't know Him. To know Him is to love Him. And so mark this. The reason that you haven't given God pure and perfect obedience is that you are darkened in your heart and corrupted on the inside. The Bible's teaching is that out of the heart of man comes evil words and evil deeds. It is because of our sinful desires in our souls that we use the hands and feet that were made to serve God to sin against Him instead. It's because of our sinful desires that we take the mind that was made to think deep thoughts of God and we turn it instead so that we use it to justify and rationalize sin and rebellion. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet what we see in our passage is that the debt that we all owe can be canceled. Have you ever had a moment when some big debt you owed was fully and finally paid off? And all the legal requirements that were upon you are now gone. Uh, Maybe some of you have paid off a vehicle or maybe you've paid off a house. And there's that sense of great relief when you come out from under that tremendous debt. How much more wonderful to know that the righteous wrath of God no longer has any claim on you. 
How much more to see that though his wrath is great and must be satisfied, the mercy of God is great as well. Oh, our God is a righteous God and a just God and therefore a God who punishes, but he is also a God of grace. How is it that our sin debt can be canceled? Listen to Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, listen to this, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this Christ set aside, nailing it to the cross. Aren't you thankful for the cross? You see, the word cancel here doesn't mean that the debt is simply forgiven without being paid. Rather, the word cancel here means that the debt is gone because somebody else paid it for you. Paul uses this picture of a document, a record of the debt that we owe. Uh, That document declares the legal demands of justice, right? Justin Nail has sinned. He has sinned in a million times, in a million ways. The wages of sin is death. Justin has sinned both in body and soul. Both body and soul must experience an appropriate death. And since I have sinned against an infinitely good God, I deserve an eternal death. The punishment must fit the crime. And so here's what stands between me and heaven. Here's what stands between me and God. There is this legal requirement, this debt that must be paid. And what does this verse say? What did Jesus do? We're told he literally took that document and set it aside. He he removed that document out of the courtroom, out of the proceedings. The, The sin debt document is no longer to be considered It's as if all my sins are gone, as far away as the east is from the west. And then Paul says in Colossians, Jesus doesn't just take that document aside. He nails it to his cross. And the cross stands forever as the place of our salvation. For it was there that Jesus chose to love us by taking our sin onto his account and onto his shoulders. And Jesus bore the wrath of God in his human soul and he bore it completely and he bore it fully. How can I ever make light of my sin when I consider what Christ endured for it? When I think of Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through Christ's suffering, God's glory was vindicated and sin was shown to be the horrendous thing that it is and justice was upheld. The very universe would unravel if God's glory was not upheld. But through the cross, both God's glory was upheld and my soul was saved. And yours too if you're a believer. Another question, who has the authority to cancel our sin debt? 
And here in our passage, we find that Jesus once again surprises and stuns the crowd by declaring that he has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. How can that be? Our sins are against God, against God's justice, against God's holy character, right? If, if you come and you slap me in the face, Bill can't be the one who forgives you. Because you slapped me. You didn't, you didn't slap Bill, you slapped me. Bill can't forgive you. I'm the one who has to forgive. Well, so all of our sins have been committed against God. God must be the one to forgive. And yet Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And that's the point. Jesus Christ is God. He is one with God. He is the Son of God. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. Jesus is a divine spirit who fills all things and upholds all things. And as that spirit, as the second person of the Godhead, he is the one we have sinned against. But he has added to himself human flesh. He has become a man so that we who are creatures can relate to our creator. This is no mere man from Nazareth having dinner at your house, Mr. Simon the Pharisee. This is the God-man. This is God himself breaking bread with you. This man, because he is God, has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus is not making things easier for the Pharisees. He just keeps making these blasphemous statements. But they're only blasphemous if they're not true. We might ask, okay, who can have their sin debt canceled? And this passage is encouraging to us. For it shows us that even those who are considered the worst sinners can be forgiven. This lady represents the kind of person who many would have written off as hopeless. Indeed, until she heard Jesus speak, this woman herself might have thought that there was no hope for her. Not after all that she's done. Not someone with her past. Surely someone as, as pure and as holy as this man Jesus could never receive her, could never welcome her. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that the whole reason he came was to save sinners. Do you have a lot of sin? That just means you qualify. Uh, Martin Luther said, when Satan reminds me of my sin, I am encouraged because Jesus came to save sinners. I can assure you, indeed, I would stake my very soul on it. There is no person within the sound of my voice that cannot be saved if they will come to Jesus Christ in faith. It's what we see here, isn't it? Your faith has saved you. Your faith. Don't overcomplicate this. Faith isn't some difficult thing. 
Faith isn't a set of steps you have to follow. Faith isn't a set of doctrines that you have to memorize and pass a test on. No, faith is simply hearing the truth about Jesus and believing that truth and therefore acting on that truth by coming to him and asking him to save you. This woman simply heard Jesus preach, discovered that there was hope for someone like her, was absolutely amazed that through this man, even she could be made right with God. And so she comes to him and she worships him and says the only way she knows how, I want to follow you. That's faith. Jesus says her faith has saved her. Dear friend, to have faith is simply to hear the truth that Jesus loved you and gave his life for you and then believe it. Believe that he loves you and so run to him. Ask him for the free gift of salvation and then believe that he keeps his word. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then gratitude and enjoy. Do like this woman. Worship him. Begin to follow him. Learn from Jesus. Watch as he transforms you from the inside out through his teaching. One last question about this passage. What are the results of having your sin debt canceled? What are the results of being forgiven? Well, we see one result at the end of verse 50. Peace. How long had it been since this woman had known peace? When we have come to rest in Jesus Christ, we are given peace with God himself. And that is the foundation of all real peace. The holy God of the universe is at peace with us. Indeed, God sees us as counted righteous in Christ. And the peace we have with God is peace with the Father and peace with the Son and peace with the Spirit. If you have trusted Jesus, you are at peace with God. Such peace that we've even been adopted into the family. God is our Father and He's given us the Holy Spirit and we are being blessed with promise after promise that all is working for our good and we will never be left or forsaken. If being at enmity with God is horrific, being at peace with God is life and joy itself. Nothing else can compare with knowing God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Indeed, Paul said he counted all of his past excellencies, all of his past accomplishments as dung, manure, compared to knowing God through Jesus Christ. This leads us to the other result of being forgiven. Loving worship. You see, this is what Jesus speaks about. When he compares the way Simon the Pharisee had treated him versus the way this woman had treated him. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. 
You see, the Pharisee did not believe that he needed much forgiveness. And because the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus, they found no forgiveness. It's no wonder that this man treated Jesus so poorly. But this woman, she knew her sin. This woman knew something of the depths of what she had done. And therefore, she understood what a tremendous thing it was to be forgiven. As long as our sins are small, Christ will be small to us. But when we see our sins as they actually are, when we put them in the true scales, when we realize what Christ did to take our sins away, we cannot help but love Him. Even this morning, we have been worshiping Christ. What kind of worship did you bring to Christ this morning? How much of your heart, how much of your very self is in your worship? Few things reflect the true condition of your soul more than the vitality of your worship. Are you loving Him? Are you adoring Christ? Are you ready to live for Him? Are you ready to take down hell with a water pistol if He commands it? Is Jesus your everything? See the Savior whose arms are open wide. See that He can make even the phallus clean. Let us trust Him. Let us love Him. And let's see what a blessed thing it is to be forgiven of our sins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.